It's actually my honor to welcome all of you to the Annie Kinhead Warfield Lecture Series. Dr. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, a distinguished professor of systematic theology at the seminary from 1887 to 1921, adored his wife, Annie Kincaid. This lectureship on our Reformed theological heritage is held every two years in her memory. We are honored to have Dr. Frederica Nussel with us to deliver the lecture series tonight, beginning tonight, entitled Dynamics of the Spirit, a Pneumatological Approach to Dogmatics. Dr. Nussel was scheduled to deliver these lectures in the spring of 2020, in fact, about two years ago, almost to the night. Uh, but COVID uh, prevented her from doing so, in fact, just days before she was supposed to come to this campus, the country closed down. I know she has since then spent a considerable amount of time revising her lectures, for which we are so grateful, and we are delighted, finally, to welcome her to campus. Dr. Nussel is Professor of Systematic Theology and Director of the Ecumenical Institute at Heidelberg University. She previously served as Vice Rector for Education and the co-director of the Marcellius College at Heidelberg. Prior, Dr. Nussel was on the faculty of the University of Münster and the University of Munich. She was a visiting professor at Gregoriana in Rome and a research fellow at the University of Gothenburg. Dr. Nussel's research focuses on the intersections of dogmatics and ecumenical theology. She is deeply engaged in a variety of ecumenical bodies and dialogues, including the joint working group between the Vatican and the World Council of Churches, the International Lutheran Roman Catholic Commission for Christian Unity as well. Other areas of interest include concepts of ecclesiastical unity in Christian confessional cultures, the implications of confessional differentiation, functions of concept of religions, modern atheism, and theology and neuroscience. Dr. Nussel graduated from King's College in London and received her Diploma in Philosophy of Religion and Ethics. She earned her doctorate in theology in 1994 and her habilitation in systematic theology in 1998, both from the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich. Dr. Nussel's recent publications include Ecumenical Values, the Ecumenical and Canonical Contribution of Churches Towards Europe European Unification in 2019. And also the essay, The Value of the Bible, Martin Collar's Theology of Scripture and Its Ecumenical Impact, which can be found in the volume Multiple Reformations, 
The Many Faces and Legacies of the Reformation, published in 2018. Dr. Newsel is no stranger to Princeton. She was, in 2009 and 10 a fellow at the Center of Theological Inquiry, and in 2013 and 14, again a fellow for the Religious Experience and Moral Identity Project at CTI. So it is with great pleasure that we welcome her back to Princeton, this time as our Annie Kincaid Warfield Lecturer. We join me in welcoming Dr. Frederica Newsom. I would first like to thank President Craig Barnes, Professor Bruce McCormack, and the faculty at Princeton Theological Seminary for the invitation to give this year's Annie Kincaid Warfield Lectures. It is a great honor to be included in the list of distinguished speakers who have been invited over the years to deliver the Warfield Lectures even with respect to the legacy of Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. As the President just mentioned, the lectures were planned uh, two years ago. We haven't quite gotten over the COVID crisis, which has taken and will continue to take lives of many people, and now a new crisis has emerged and challenges transatlantic bonds. As you know now, in recent weeks, the political situation has changed dramatically with the war in Ukraine. Just a few years ago, the, U the U.S. military base in Heidelberg was closed, and the last sol soldiers and their families stationed there have gone. I grew up with an American presence in Heidelberg. It was very unfamiliar to me when they all, this all changed, and now we are experiencing and seeing again and in what seems to be dangerous and less calculable situation, how important NATO and transatlantic solidarity are. Perhaps without understanding as a standalone goal, Benjamin Warfield had done much for transatlantic exchange and cohesion in the field of theology. Warfield was, first of all, one of the most influential theologians in the history of Princeton Theological Seminary. During his time here, he also established transatlantic relationships. Having read some of his biography, I discovered that after his graduation from the College of New Jersey in Princeton, Warfield traveled to Edinburgh in February 1872, and after some time there, made his way to Heidelberg, where he happened to announce his decision to enter Christian ministry. Returning to the United States, Warfield studied at the Theological Seminary of the Presbyterian Church at Princeton, and in 1876 he married Annie Peirce Kincaid, and shortly thereafter they made a trip to Germany again. During their time together in Germany, Annie endured a severe storm, storm which apparently had a lasting effect on her nerves. She was in poor health for the rest of her life, and Benjamin took care of her. It is to her memory that these lectures are dedicated. J 
Just as Swarthfield sought exchange with theologies on the other side of the Atlantic, so the Warfield lectures have been used for such exchange, not least with German-speaking theologians. I'm very interested in this exchange in both directions, as it is evident. I've spent significant time in Princeton twice at the CTI. During this time, I became acquainted with Bruce McCormick, with whom I have since had many theological conversations here and in Heidelberg, as well as our work together as co-editors of Theologische Bibliothek Tübelmann with the Greuter. With Bruce's cooperation, I acquired a PTS graduate to be one of my current doctoral students in Heidelberg, Brandon Watson, who has recently submitted his dissertation in systematic theology. <laughs> Usually, I would write my lectures in English from the start, but Brandon's German is so good now that he translated my lectures <coughs> for this, this, um, uh, uh, this uh, visit. So I would also like to take his, uh, this opportunity, while he's probably in bed, <laughs> to show my gratitude to him for his hard work. Let's have a look back at Warfield and his theological interests on his second trip to Europe to get a sense of how the theological debates have changed since then. During their second trip, the Warfields spent much of their time in Leipzig, where Benjamin worked with theologians Christoph Ernst Luthard and Franz Delitz, who of, uh, both of whom were Lutheran theologians, and representatives of the Erlangen School, which was obviously not an obstacle for Warfield. He was interested in apologetic interpretations of Christianity as the absolute religion, stemming from interests in Old Testament studies as well as systematic theology. While it is not clear in which way Luthard and Delitzsch influenced Warfield's own apologetic approach, it is likely that he approved of their critique of David Friedrich Strauss and Ernest Renan, who in different ways challenged the notion of the absoluteness of Christianity Warfield was trying to defend. The absoluteness of Christianity was a burning issue at the time for a number of reasons. Warfield, as an ecclesiastical theologian, saw the absoluteness of Christianity as implied in the New Testament witness to Jesus Christ. Can one believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, whereby he became the savior for all people, and at the same time acknowledge other ways of truth or ways of salvation? Christian faith thus has a coherence problem. The debate about viable theological religious concepts has become lively, particularly in the second half of the 20th century, with the pluralization of approaches. Until then, it oscillated between the models of Ernst Trölsch and Karl Barth. While Trölsch, with reference to Schleiermacher in his work The Absoluteness of Christianity, advocated the relative supremacy of Christianity, Karl Barth, in the course of his critique of religion via a theology of revelation, admitted in paragraph 17 of this Kirchliche Dogmatik that all religions fall short of the true relationship to God with the exception of the chosen religion. 
It must be noted, however, that the problem with which Warfield was concerned is still being discussed in contemporary academic dialogue, albeit under vastly altered conditions due to the ecumenical movement and especially the insights of post-colonial religious studies and theology. The theology of religion, however, is only one of many hot topics in systematic theology or dogmatics. And now I come to my second point, dogmatics in the context of German-speaking theology. Before I begin addressing the topic I have chosen for these lectures, I would like to make a few remarks of the, devel the development of German language and systematic theology or dogmatics in order for you to understand the background on which my theological work is based. As far as I understand it, the de development of German theology and philosophy of religion is less thematically branched out than in North America, which has a lot to do with our different histories and the different societies resulting from the historical backgrounds. But it also has to do with the institutional anchoring of theology. German society, likewise in Austria and Switzerland, is predominantly white and unfortunately also less, far less religiously diverse. Flourishing Jewish life was extinguished by the Nazis in Germany and it has only slowly and cautiously returned. Muslims make up around 8% of the current population. Migrant churches are also growing, yet the context of theology is still comparatively homogeneous. Until recently, the vast majority of the population belonged either to the Roman Catholic Church or to a Protestant regional church in the Evangelical Church of Germany. Catholic and Protestant theology are taught in, at state-supported universities, which has ensured uniform standards in the theological education, while also causing academic theology not to be as particularly diverse. I first became aware of this gap when I studied for a year at King's College in London in 1985-86, I studied with the Canadian theologian Grace Janssen, a terrific lecturer who unfortunately died at young age. In my first seminar, she asked me what great contrasts there were in, in theology in Germany. I mentioned the debate on natural theology or the role, or, or the role of anthropology taking place between Eberhard Jüngel and Wolfgang Pannenberg. She smiled and said that these were all insignificant debates compared to those <laughs> in Anglo-American theology. I, I was soon convinced myself, which was one reason why I chose to go to England in the first place. So what are the current debates in systematic theology? First, a word about terminology, um, because here we have difference with the, um, uh, uh, in contrast to the English. Um, on the one hand, systematic theology is used to designate the discipline that includes dogmatics, ethics, philosophy of religion, and ecumenical theology, if you are interested in it. Additionally, the term is used in a narrow sense, like uh, uh, Paul Tillich used it, in that it excludes ethics from the field altogether. 
Others use the term dogmatics to refer to the same field in order to clarify the limitations that accompany the interpretation of Christian doctrine or the contents of the faith. At the same time, there are those who do not wish to even use the term systematic theology to avoid the claim of a self-contained system. To me, such an avoidance seems to be overcautious since the renunciation of a system does not exclude a systematic methodology. By this methodology, I mean the coherent explanation of the Christian faith that takes all essential themes into account. I understand such an explanation of the faith as the task of dogmatics. The term dogmatics is no less loaded than the term systematic theology because it gives the idea that dogmatics prescribes what it is be taught, has to be taught and believed. There are theologians like, for example, Moltmann and uh, Dalfert, who dispense with the terms altogether and take a more topical approach to theology. I myself have no difficulty working with the concept of dogmatics in the tradition of Benjamin Warfield and others. In fact, my doctoral dissertation dealt with the origins of the term and its development in the early 18th century theologian Johann Franz Budeus. The term became a disciplinary designation at the exact time when confessional fidelity took a backseat to the new task of defending Christian doctrine in the face of rationalist and empiricist criticism from the likes of Spinoza and Descartes, the Deus and John Locke. For this reason, I associate the term dogmatics with a skill one uses when dealing with the breadth of Christian doctrine. At the same time, however, I do not think it is necessary to become dogmatic in terminology. I have a certain difficulty, I must admit, with the English term constructive theology. Not only because there is not an equivalent to Ger uh, in German, um, German language, but because it seems to me that constructive implies an opposition to historical. As I understand it, it is not possible to keep genealogical questions out of the explanation of the Christian faith. Removing the historical and de developmental questions might work in catechesis, but not in academic theology. Christianity is a positive religion, as Friedrich Schleiermacher stated in his Encyclopedia. For Schleiermacher, positivity is part of the essence of religion. Over and against Kant, he argues that rational religion is not religion. The rationalization of religion is a construct, whereas real religion emerges historically through a mediator. Even if this description no longer does justice to the diversity of religions according to our understanding today, it is nevertheless true for Christianity and its basis in the religion of Israel. The historicity of the Christian religion is shown by the biblical writings in the combination of the Gospels, Acts, Epistles, and Revelation of John. They all tell, tell the story of Jesus, the formation of the first churches, the theological co conflicts, and the expected end times. 
God's revelation in the story of Jesus is historical. It has a prehistory and it releases a history of transmission. The story of Jesus as God's revelation becomes present in the mode of proclamation and thus in the mode of interpretation. Even in the historical critical reconstruction of the history of revelation and transmission is controversial, it does not change the fact that the reference point of the Christian faith is historical in nature. Moreover, on the level of the canon, it becomes clear that the interpretation of the history of Jesus as God's revelation occurs discursively. On the one hand, the scriptures bear witness to interpretive disputes in the communities. They document how different interpretations and conflicts arose in different communities. On the other hand, the gospels and the epistles set different emphases in their theological accounts. It is therefore no, therefore no coincidence that the post-New Testament history of Christianity also continues this discourse. Dogmatic work is part of this discourse. It does not start by itself without presuppositions, but presupposes the history of interpretation and discusses theological questions of the respective present. From my point of view, it is important for the academic status of dogmatics to maintain the historical trajectory. My next point, religious consciousness or God consciousness, question mark. In German speaking theology, there is a topic that has long been a particular concern to the dogmatic tradition, the scientific nature of theology. Why has this question played such an important role? There are internal and external reasons. The internal reason is the intricate intertwining of theology with philosophy in antiquity and the consequences it had through the Copernican revolution in philosophy. Since then, Protestant theology has been faced with the question of how to define the subject matter in such a way that it can withstand Kant's epistemological critique. Schleiermacher was the first to provide an answer to this problem around which many systematic theolo theologians are presently oriented. The object of theology is not the facts of revelation, rather its knowledge is directed to the essence of the Christian religion as a positive historical phenomenon, which is only the first part of the argument. It has also uh, <coughs> to be shown that religion belongs to what it means to be human. Schleiermacher explains this relationship with a theory of um, subjectivity, explaining religion as a feeling of absolute dependence, as the starting point of thinking and willing. Theologians in the line of Schleiermacher today, such as Ulrich Barth, Christian Danz, Volkhard Wittekind, show the importance of the contents of faith for religious consciousness. They not only attempt to do so because it allows them to con uh, converse with philosophy, but because they think this method is able to justify theo uh, theology as a standalone academic discipline within the university. This justification is the external reason. 
it is an epistemological justification that theology has a right to exist at the university just as any other academic or scientific discipline. And I can tell you this is an issue in Germany. <laughs> I consider, nevertheless, I consider this approach of religious consciousness problematic. With the reconstruction of faith as a functional symbolic world of religious consciousness, one con can convince oneself and other disciplines in which sense the content of Christian faith idealistically has for the self-understanding of the Christian. However, whether Christians can recognize themselves in this explanation remains open. Moreover, this view presupposes an epistemological understanding of science that is by no means self-evident in other disciplines. A second group of theologians tried to explain the scientific nature of theology not through religious consciousness, but through an explanation of individual Christian themes and basic claims in discussion with the other external theological disciplines non-theological disciplines. This method is how my teacher, Wolfhard Pannenberg, sought to go about it. One can also see the same methodology in some works of Michael Welker and from a different perspective, uh, Ingolf Dalfert, and in yet another way, Christoph Schwebel, who unfortunately died recently. In my opinion, <clears throat> um, another theologian, Isla Terms, who has just written a three-volume systematic theology, takes a middle position between both sides. He develops a phenomenology of the certainty of Christianity, but then connects it, depending on the topic, with insights from other academic fields and research. There is agreement between the two groups in the need to explain the scientific uh, character of theology, the difference lies in the treatment of the content of Christian belief. The first group sees the content as a function of religious consciousness. The second group understands the content of faith not simply as ideas in our consciousness, but as realities able to be disputed and in need of demonstration. <coughs> The approaches in the second group are more heterogeneous. It is mainly Wolfhard Pannenberg and Eila Terms who in their own way offer an anthropological basis for the conversation with other disciplines. Pannenberg, like Karl Barth, saw the fundamental challenge in the radical critique of religion, the point of which is to show religious content as not only being a projection, but that religion is a perversion of human determination. By way of contrast, in his anthropology and theological perspective, Pannenberg demonstrates that humans are religious by nature in, in, in that one is unthematically related to God in the formation of one's self-consciousness in, in social relations. Along with scholars who represent philosophical anthropology, he describes humans as open to the world and then takes this openness to the world one step further as an openness to God. This view has been considered an overstepping of theological boundaries and has attracted much criticism. In a further line of argument, Pannenberg explains that in the formation of identity, 
in the development of self-consciousness and social relations, the whole of existence is anticipated in feeling. In this feeling of life, God is anthematically present. However, the philosophical and psychological arguments are also controversial here. Of course, the Barthian critics have not only questioned the individual arguments, but generally have considered such an attempt as a proposal of natural theology in the form of anthropology. The critically um, religious tenet that God is only known from God's self, that is, through the knowledge God imparts, strikes at all attempts of establishing a philosophical knowledge of God. And it seems to me also <coughs> Um, that uh, this critique um, uh, reaches the, um, addresses the reformulation of sensus divinitatis in Alvin Plantinga's theory of basic beliefs. However, Plantinga's real point is not simply to prove a natural consciousness of God. His point, as I understand it, is to show that the assumption of such a consciousness is the form of a basic belief and is rationally justified. I go a next step um, to religious receptivity in need of orientation. The quest question of who is in the right in the modern debate about natural theology has, in my view, become obsolete since religions are not going away, um, which has nothing to do with the philosophy of religion or refutations of the critique of religion. Religions are not disappearing although they are all no, now confronted with inquiries resulting from the scientific explanation of the world. They have different resources and ways of dealing with these modern inquiries. Some religions are less likely to be influenced by any type of rationalization or secularization, whereas Christianity itself, at least in its Western forms, has developed strong tendencies toward rationalization, which has indirectly contributed to secularization. This path has always only been um, one de uh, developmental direction, alongside which there were and remain others, such as pietism, the Great Awakenings, revival movements, and Pentecostal and charismatic Christianity. Such splintering is growing and creating differences at a breathtaking rate in many regions of the world. And while secularization is increasing in the Northern Hemisphere, especially in Europe, religion is not going away here either. In Europe, it is true that to a large extent, the more traditional churches are losing members but other religious or ideological offerings are flourishing and thriving. Not least of which is the broad research on religion and the interreligious dialogue, which has contributed to the fact that radical criticism of religion has receded in academic discussions. It is not whether or sh one should or is allowed to be religious that is at stake, but rather how to be successfully religious. And thus, the proof of an all but quite indeterminate natural God consciousness, or sensus divinitatis, as Calvin called it, loses its significance. 
The question, however, why and in, what, in, and in what way people are receptive to religion remains anthropologically, philosophically, and theologically interesting. In contrast to theoretical subjectivity and philosophical identity explanations, other approaches from sociology and the social sciences, even neurosciences, have been develop developing research on religion with an emphasis on the social origins of religion. In the sake of time, I will mention only here a sociological approach that of Robert Bella. He sees the roots of religion in times of play, which eventually formed religious rituals. Michael Graziano, here at the Princeton Neuroscience Institute, shows the social conditioning of the emergence of consciousness and in turn, religion. The question of the origin of religion is complex in light of the immense deta detailed research in evolutionary history and the inescapable perspectivity in the survey and interpretation of what one is looking for, religion. The question of historical origin cannot be exhausted simply by theological means. Instead, I would like to offer an interpretation of receptivity to religion. In a very basic sense, religion offers orientation. Orientation, in turn, is a basic need humans share with animals. It includes orientation in space and time and a relation to the environment, especially other living beings and humans. Orientation has been fundamental for humans in all evolutionary states, stages of development, although the need for orientation has become increasingly complex compared to humans' early situation as hunters and gatherers. Orientation is tied to perception, but perception is also driven by the need of, uh, for orientation. The importance of perceptual orientation has become clearer to me in recent semesters through online teaching. A normal lecture, I can, in a normal lecture, I can see the faces of the students and can at least guess to some extent from their facial expressions whether they are attentive, whether they can follow my explanation, or whether they are bored. This whole form of communication was considerably um, limited with digital teaching. Last semester, I was able to hold my lecture in person again, but even then, the students were sitting in front of me with masks on their faces. <clears throat> it's amazing what you can tell just from facial and eye movements, but the fact that faces are partially covered limits my, op my options to orient myself as a teacher. I have a harder time deciding if I'm going too fast or too slow, if I'm, what I'm saying is understandable, and etc. Facial expressions are one element by which we orient ourselves in social relationships. Of course, there are many others. Social orientation includes the spatial and temporal dimensions. I need spatial orientation to be able to take my place in the lecture hall. I need temporal orientation in order to be able to coordinate the amount of material and, if necessary, speed of speech although in a different language, it's not easy. <laughs> Temporal orientation not only includes orientation of about how much time I have for a certain activity, as well as orientation about the time of the day, 
But temporal orientation also includes orientation about my situation here and now in relation to my past and future. However, I need this orientation not only for myself, but above all in relation to the people with whom I interact in a given context. Without spatial and temporal orientation, empathy, for example, is hardly possible. Finally, the temporal need for orientation makes us ask how many years left we have, uh, how many years left we have available to us. The need for spatial orientation also makes us ask ourselves where we will be when our lifetime is over. Temporal and sp spatial orientation about myself and my fellow human beings is essential in order to relate to uh, others and to oneself to plan and to act and to be able to find one's own role in different sets of relationships with fellow human beings. It is not necessary to claim that religion arose from the need for orientation in order to be able to say that it in any case provides orientation. The orientation religions provide includes, albeit in very different ways, an orientation about how to deal with these ultimate questions. Karl Barth named these questions in his essay, The Word of God and the Task of Theology. It is about the big questions of what, what for, where from, where to. He connected these questions to a polemical criticism of contemporary expectations of Christian theology. Theologians like us are not needed, Bart said, for people to construct their existence. However, they do need us for the ultimate questions beyond existence. Even, it even sounds a little jaded when Bart says, why do they not try to deal with the last questions themselves, as they do with all others? Why do they come to us, although they should have long experience that one cannot come to us as one goes to the lawyer or to, or to the dentist, that we can know more in this question than they can tell themselves. Barth's criticism of such one-sided orientation already implies, however, that the Christian religion provides orientation in these questions as well. I come to the orienting power of the Bible and the task of dogmatics. It is not necessary to demonstrate to you in detail how and, what in, uh, and to what extent the Bible gives orientation in the great questions of life. What is important to me here is this. The Bible considered as a book and sin chronously is not a catechism dealing with questions after question. The Bible in the variety of Old and New Testament writings presents a story of orientation in the relationship between God and human beings and human beings with one another. The temporal frame of orientation is spanned by the creation story at the beginning and the prospect of the end times. The spatial orientation is defined by the going out of the foreign country into the promised land and then in the New Testament by the expansion. The Bible is <coughs> Catholic in the temporal sense and becomes Catholic in the spatial sense. The ground and reference point for all human orientation is God. God is a rock in the figur figurative sense, 
but not in a rigid and uninvolved manner. Rather, God is faithful and therefore the ground of, of orientation for humanity. God first orients people through Moses, through the law and the prophets, then once and for all through Jesus Christ. <coughs> and all this happens through God's spirit. The Bible is a powerful book because it orients. At the same time, it is an ambivalent book. In many places, it, is, it gives us to understand that it is dangerous, if not life-threatening, not to follow God, to orient oneself differently. The Bible appears to be strict, but this strictness is countered by an openness and hospitality. Already in the Old Testament, we find stories of always forgiving and starting anew. In the New Testament, the orientation in Jesus Christ is extended to all people. The Bible is hospitable, not only in the way it presents God as the ground of human orientation, it is also hospitable through the diversity of forms and of texts and literatures. In addition to more doctrinal texts, such as Deuteronomy or the letter to the Romans, there are numerous narrative texts and books. Many of these narrative texts provide orientation in subtle ways. They tell of other people in other times and places, and they, yet they do so in such a way that one can understand something from these stories for one's own time, one's own place, one's own situation with fellow human beings. In its narrative form, the Bible provides orientation without prescribing how it is to be understood. It keeps it's distant, so to speak. It, it will give, um, he, I will give here two examples. In John 70, uh, 17, 12, verse 12, and Ephesians 4, uh, verses 4 to 6, the churches in Ephesus are exhorted to unity. Of course, we are not in Ephesus, thus we could escape the exhortation without effort. Moreover, John and the student of the apostle who wrote Ephesians do not explain in detail why they mean by, what they mean by unity. We can ask about it and take upon ourselves to work of exegesis, but we do not have to do so. Another example is the parables of Jesus. They are, as Gerd Tyson says, narrated meta metaphors and in this way, intend to give an impression of the kingdom of God. The metaphor offers a possibility of comparison, but the recipients must take the comparison themselves. The degree of metaphorization is such that Jesus himself provides guidance in the interpretation of the parables, and yet the interpretation is left to the recipients. The parables provide a particularly clever example of how the biblical texts themselves textually indicate that they need to be appropriated by their recipients. Their orienting power does not lie in the fact that they stimulate independent interpretation. Such interpretation in turn necessarily becomes a communal process, which is implicit in the orientation it gives. It does not orient individuals in seclusion, but in relation to God and in social relationship. 
With these reflections on the orienting power of the Bible, I do not want to claim exclusivity for the Bible. Other religious sources, such as the Quran, also provide orientation, and there is probably no literature that does not provide orientation. But the contents and literary figures are different and have different effects, which can be seen in the controversies about the Holy Scriptures. Along this line of thought, I was only interested in showing, using the Bible as an example, that religion answers the need for orientation in a sense that includes the ultimate questions. It has to be understood at the same time that it answers the answers do not necessarily satisfy. For the answers that the Bible gives are not simple. The answers to, to the big questions, what, what for, from where, where to, are initially complex and not completely uniform. And secondly, they are mysterious in that they oppose everyday experience and so-called common sense. One only has to mention the cross and resurrection to get to the point. In addition, the need for orientation in dealing with the Bible changes both in the individual context of life and through the changing social and political circumstances in which Christian community life takes place. Therein lies the root point for the emergence of Christian doctrine. In the interpretation of the biblical scriptures, already in the interpretation of the transmission in pre-canonical times, Christians experience interpretation of fluctuating, proving themselves differently, leading to problematic conclusions, which gives rise to the desire to hold on, the certain uh, hold on to certain interpretations and to exclude others permanently. Bishop Arius in the early fourth century wanted to hold on to how to understand the relationship of Jesus to the Father and taught his position throughout his region. This expansion of his ideas provoked the opposition of Bishop Alexander and ignited what was probably the greatest doctrinal dispute in the church since the uh, Council of the Apostles. Arius and Alexander were both bishops, both bore and felt responsibility for the interpretation of the Bible and thus for the orientation of their congregations. Their dispute is a historically incisive example of the role of theology and doctrine because it resulted in a doctrinal decision that has been binding to the entire church. Christian theology and doctrine, however, already came into being with the proclamation of the gospel itself. For the orienting power of the biblical texts is, of course, based on the orienting significance of the message, which was at first only passed uh, on orally. However, with the growing written tradition and the eventual canonization, the possibilities of common interpretation grew, and with it, the risks of controversial interpretations. Theological reflection or dogmatics is a meta-orientation in the interpretation of the Bible. Theological reflection initially ignites on individual questions and themes of interpretation. In the Reformation period, Melanchthon discovered the Lozi method for this purpose. His Lozi are practically a dogmatics, since Melanchthon was naturally concerned to show how the explanation of sin, for example, corresponds to the explanation of grace. 
The reform tradition has stuck with the Lozi method at the time, but the Lutheran tradition has adopted Aristotle's analytic method to organize the Lozi systematically. Ironically, it was the reformed theologian Keckermann who proposed this method, which then the reformed uh, found unsuitable. The Lutherans, on the other hand, found it fitting since, it, in this way, theology could be conceived as a practical discipline, analogous to medicine. A practical discipline answers the question of how a particular subject can arrive at a determined goal to the means by which this aim is achieved. Stated theologically, by which means can a sinful human uh, regain communion with God, who is the ultimate human aim? The reformed, as far as I know, found this practical constriction of theological orientation too narrow. The Lutherans, on the other hand, wanted to emphasize us this narrowing to discuss the difference between theology and phil philosophy, and also to make it clear that the goal of salvation does not already lie in theological knowledge itself. Rather, the goal lies in faith worked by spirit and not by the theologian. With this example from the history of Reformation theology, I only want to illustrate that the question of orientation continue on the level of dogmatics. Dogmatics does not bring interpretation to a standstill, but generates new questions of interpretation, which does not mean, however, that questions of interpretation are never settled. The ecumenical councils reveal that decisions were, were brought about, but not without divisions. In the Reformation period, this process was re repeated in the form of confession um, <coughs> uh, uh, and confessional writings. Dogmatic reflection offers orientation on the meta, meta level, I said. It does not happen through the final determination of interpretation, even though some dogmatic theologians tend to put it that way. Rather, it is done by setting forth the reasons why a particular inter interpretation is better than other, another. To do so, consistency with scripture is one criterion, but not the only criterion. For it is a matter of conclusiveness in the horizon of the respective contemporary need for orientation and comparison with extra theological insights from which questions arise for the previous interpretation of faith. The variety of modern dogmatics shows how differently one go can go about addressing these questions of different orientation. One simply has to compare Willi Matti Kerkinen's constructive Christian theology for the pluralistic world with Douglas Ortadi's reformed theology for the 21st century. In my own dogmatic work, I pursue the goal of gaining determined principal reflections from the biblical scriptures on the individual topics of faith with which new questions can be dealt under changed and always evolving conditions. In doing so, it is important to me that the connection to the biblical language and important stages in the theological interpretation accompany the interpre interpretative evaluations. The goal of dogmatic work is not to lead away from the Bible, but back to it. In these lectures, I would like to demonstrate how this is done by means of pneumatology. 
why pneumatology? The idea for, for these lectures on pneumatology, pneumatology goes back to a conference I organized together with my colleague Hans-Peter Großhans from Münster, and it took place um, in Heidelberg in 2017 for the anniversary of the Reformation. It was titled Lutheran Identity in a Global Horizon, an inquiry into current profiles of Lutheran theology. The idea was to counterbalance the very one-sided focus on the European context of the Reformation anniversary. We tried to invite theologians from all continents outside of Europe to present an essay in, on the situation of Lutheranism in their own context. And, and only Europeans were not invited. Two colleagues came from Asia, two from Africa, unfortunately only one from Latin America, and three colleagues from the U United States. Kenneth Apples was uh, with us, and also Cheryl Peterson um, <coughs> was a member. We could not get anyone from Australia, but Lutheranism is also weakly represented there. Despite regional differences, all the descriptions of the colleagues from Asia, Africa, Latin America, even American um, Terry Peterson agreed on one thing. Lutheran churches across the globe have strong neighbors in the Pentecostal churches. They are losing members because the Pentecostal and charismatic churches are simply more attractive. In turn, Lutherans are questioning their identity. There are, of course, many reasons for this development, and one cannot believe that a re renovation in the dogmatic framework would be more attractive. However, the situation does, <laughs> does have something to do with dogmatic orientation. One cannot deny that for a long time, the work of the spirit was given less attention in the Western tradition than the work of Jesus Christ. It was not until the 20th century that Jürgen Moltmann and Michael Welker took countermeasures and derived a more holistic pneumatological framework. Recently, there is a certain hype in pneumatology, and this is with which I will end. There um, appeared three major works on pneumatology in Germany. In 2015, Lukas Oli presented a theology of the Holy Spirit, in which the, he interprets the spirit phenomenologically via experience of presence and recognition. The second word, uh, uh, work is written by Christian Danz, whom I mentioned for, uh, earlier in the group of the subjectivists. His pneumatology emphasizes in a liberal Protestant manner the role of the spirit as reminding us of Jesus Christ. Finally, of a different nature is the intentionally popular scientific monograph, um, The Holy Spirit, a biography by Jörg Lauster from 2021. In a, it is explicitly not a pneumatology, but linguist, linguistically, it is a very beautiful and refreshing representation of the many ways in which the uh, spirit has been described and explored in the Christian history. The first two books are aimed at academic theologians, the third as well, but it reaches out primarily to non-theologians interested in religious and cultural history. This new attention to the spirit is remarkable. All the same, uh, at the same time, however, it is not clear what consequences this will actually have for dogmatics. 
that is for the explication of the Christian faith as a whole with the central question I would like to address in these lectures. I would like to focus the dogmatic reflection in creation, redemption and reconciliation on the work of the spirit. Dogmatics will be conceived and narrated initially from the perspective of the working of the spirit. First, I will look at the talk of the spirit in the Bible and ask about the relationship of the spirit to the father and the son. Then I discuss in, su in subsequent lectures, the role of spirit in creation, redemption and re reconciliation. And in doing so, I will ask how the nature of the spirit is revealed in the work of the spirit, which inevitably leads to the question of how the freedom of the spirit is to be understood and what consequences the spirit's own freedom has for our understanding of human freedom. Thank you very much.